Christ. The first four verses, I think, are important. I will read them, then I'll make a few remarks about this uh, book, a little bit of the history of it, and then we'll get right into the verses. But Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time pass unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The first four verses are one long sentence, but we're teaching on the supremacy of Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for another beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for the rain opening the heavens on the fields in this area. We pray tonight, Lord, as we look into the scriptures, help us to fall in love with Jesus again. Help us to see things about him maybe that we had not considered. Help me to teach clearly and give us all ears to hear as we magnify your son and what he's done for us in redemption. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. This is certainly one of those books I think everybody should take the time to read. It's a longer book, somewhat like the book of Romans. Unlike the book of Romans, which is more of a text dealing with a lot of theological truths in a systematic way, the book of Hebrews goes step by step in explaining why Christ is better than angels, than Moses, than Aaron, and the priesthood, better than Melchizedek, and so on. So over and over again in this book, you run into the word better. We have a better priesthood, better high priest, better sacrifice, better covenant, and so on. The reason that I wanted us to look into this is because Hebrews is also the only book, I think, in the New Testament that really forces you to study the Old Testament. So in reality, you have to study the entirety of the Old Covenant in order to understand many of the things that are stated in this book. In fact, in the first chapter alone, you have seven quotations from the Old Testament, more than 80 or so throughout the entirety of the book. The word God appears regularly because of the fact that he's trying to magnify God and, and help people to see the, the, the bigness of our Savior. Now, this book had an interesting history after it was written, and People have argued whether or not it really is a letter because it doesn't begin with the traditional phrases like grace and peace be unto you and name a particular people group and then signed at the end by something like from Peter or Paul or something like that. So many scholars today have this idea that this book is not written by Paul and they'll go so far as to cite people like Clement of Rome and a man named Tertullian, some of these early church fathers, and they'll even go so far as to quote Martin Luther and others and say that this book did not come with the name of Paul on it. And they say the style of it is different than Paul's. But to be quite honest with you, the common view throughout church history has been that it was written by Paul. And the same way that people find the three or four authors that they say declare that Paul could not have been the writer, there are other people from the same time frame to say Paul was the writer. 
a man named Clement of Alexandria. Augustine believed that Paul was the writer. Uh, even in the, the uh, Renaissance and Reformation times, a man named Lorenzo Valla believed that Paul was the writing. And, and the difficulty, they say, is the style of writing. His vocabulary is different. The way he puts sentences together are different. So it couldn't be Paul. Well, that's not the best justification, I think. Because if I were to let you read some of the letters I wrote to Tiffany when we were dating, and believe me, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then I also permitted you to read some letters that, that I've written to some scholarly friends of mine. There's no way on this earth you think that the same person wrote any of those. Because the language is different. When I'm dealing with something in Latin or Syriac or some other language, my vocabulary is totally different. The way I put sentences together are altogether different. So I don't think stylistically that's the way to look at it. But I will tell you this, that having examined this in detail through the years, I'm convinced in my estimation that Paul's a writer because he deals with so many of the same subjects. Whether he's talking about faith that justifies us or talking about the manner in which we're redeemed, I don't think anybody else made this up or somebody else could append it in the way that Paul did. But look here at the first word of the first verse. It begins with God. Now, in the, the Greek text, the wording is a little bit different, but the subject of the sentence is the same. God, in different times, in different manners, spake unto us, unto the fathers, or by the prophets, it should say. So a variety of different ways. When you read the Old Testament, one of the things you, you recognize is that God is one that communicates. Now the author, Paul, is not going out of his way to try to defend God, to try to argue the existence of God. He begins with the first verse letting you know he believes there is a God, and that God has a Son. So it's just like Genesis 1. The scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The writer of Genesis doesn't try to defend the existence of God. You either accept it and believe it or you don't. And this is what happens here with Hebrews. He starts right off the bat by letting you know who it is that he's dealing with. He tells you in verse 2 that God he believes in has a son. And he also tells you in verse 3 that this is the one who purged us of our sins. So in the first three verses, he goes out of his way to make sure you know that he's talking about a God that's different than the gods of the ancient Romans. The gods of the ancient Greeks, any of the Egyptian gods or African deities, any of the religions of the world. Hinduism is not a part of what he's talking about. And Hinduism certainly did exist at the time this was written. Certainly not Buddhism. In their beliefs and their understanding of enlightenment, he's going out of his way to explain clearly that God spoke to our fathers. So he's saying our ancestors heard from God. Well, how did they hear from God? God spoke to Moses at a burning bush. He spoke to Amos, the prophet, through a basket of summer fruit. He spoke to Abraham in a vision. The Lord spoke to the children of Israel many times through the high priest when he had that breastplate that had the stones representing each tribe. There were two stones called Urim and Thummim. Those two stones when you went into the presence of God as the high priest and you sought the will of God, it is believed that those two stones would glow or illuminate 
And so if they had illumination in those stones, that meant it was the will of God to go forward. But if nothing happened, they, they, can, they, can, they believed that God did not want them to do what it is that they desired to do. So God spoke through that. Naturally, God spoke through the prophets, Daniel, Jeremiah. Here recently I was reading where Jeremiah prophesied to the children of Israel of the coming of the Babylonians. Two false prophets declared Jeremiah was wrong. One was named Hananiah. The other was named Shemaiah. And Jeremiah ended up being correct. Throughout the, the Bible's history, from Genesis to Malachi, God has continued to speak. You won't find periods where God did not have anything to say. Now, I know there is the verse in the scripture where it says there will come a time where there will be a famine for the hearing of the word of God. But let's remember what that says, a famine regarding the hearing of God's word. Not that God wasn't speaking through his word, that people weren't listening to what God is saying. We see that right now in our own nation, around the world. God's word is read in many churches every single week, and people don't hear a thing that God is saying. And it's evidenced by the things that we go out into the community and into society and do. There's no way on this earth we can hear what God is saying, then go do our own thing, and then expect God to bless us because of that. In different times and in different manners. God spoke to Noah before and after the ark situation. God spoke to Abraham, told him to leave his family. God spoke to Abraham's son Isaac, spoke to Isaac's son Jacob, spoke through Joseph and to Joseph, spoke to his descendants, as I said, with, with Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses' successor, Joshua. And from Joshua right on into the ju judges, there's never been a time that God has had a covenant people that he didn't have something to say. And even in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, the scripture says to him that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying. So God has something to say. But we have to be willing to hear what it is he wants to say. Verse two then says up to this point, God has spoken in a very fragmentary way to the fathers by the prophets. But now he's spoken to us by his son. So notice the contrast in verse one. He talks about the prophets, but verse two, he's talking about the son in verse one. He's talking about the former days, but in verse two, he's speaking about the last days. So the last days did not begin uh, with us yesterday. The last days began with the coming of the Lord. And when Jesus Christ was here on the planet, it says here in these last days, these latter days, the Lord has spoken to us by his son. If there's if, if there's one thing we do need to know is that God's speech is revealed through Jesus. I mean, God's best conversation comes through his son. And when you take the time to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you can see Jesus clearly. And you can see the, 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 the manifestation of God clearly. And when you read this, it's almost like taking a diamond. Now, see, you, you know, I, I know all, all of you in here, you, you, you've got those diamonds for your, your wives and all that. You, you, folk, you folks in here are pretty wealthy. So when you, when you hold your diamonds up to the light and then you turn them, I mean, you, you just get a lot of different colors. It, it glistens. And you see the different facets of it as you turn it. Well, that's exactly what happens 
when a person is trying to get to know God and they first get a glimpse of Jesus and they're reading the Gospels and it's like, oh, my goodness, you mean to tell me God is this wonderful? Well, he is. He's this amazing. He is. So this is where it says he has spoken to us in his son. Now, there are seven things, verses two and three, that are now told to us about our Savior. Number one, it says he's appointed him heir of all things. Now, if you see the word heir, then, of course, you're going to think of the word inheritance. It's in the book of Galatians that it says a testament is not in force unless the testator dies. But once the testator dies, then the person receives the inheritance. That is to say that all of you in here that have all kinds of wonderful things and you go down to the lawyer and you create a will. And then you say to the lawyer, I want this particular individual to receive these particular items as stipulated here. They have witnesses and everything like that. Once you pass away. It's at that point where somebody's going to have to be the executor of all of that stuff. People are going to get together. All the family members are going to be around there. And then they are going to then learn and discover about all of those things that you left me. And then that's when Isla's son Mike is going to ask, well, Daryl, do I get anything? See? Okay. Well, Jesus is the heir of all things because he was raised from the dead by the Father. He was appointed the heir of all things. That means before God ever made the heavens and the earth, Jesus was already designed to be the heir because redemption was not God's plan B. It was plan A. Before there ever was a sin, Adam, Eve, a garden of Eden, God the Son had already chosen to voluntarily give himself for us to sacrifice himself. So he's appointed heir and he will receive all things. The scripture says that there's coming a day when death is going to be defeated. All enemies will be placed under the feet of Jesus. We know that Christ destroyed, spoiled the powers of the, the principalities and the devil. We understand that he has all power. He holds the key of David. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We know that. But there still are things that are going to transpire when he reigns. In total, I mean, he has all power when everything is put put to a place where it's subject to him. Scripture says that the earth is the footstool of the Lord. So then it says again in verse two, it says, by whom also the world is made. Now, this sentence coincides with a statement made in Colossians about Christ. That Christ is involved with the making of the world. Now, if you're looking for a verse of scripture that expounds or teaches the doctrine of creation, you have it right there in that final sentence of verse two. That sentence tells you clearly that it is through Jesus or by means of Jesus that the worlds, plural, are made. So we're talking about every planet you can think of, the, the celestial stars. The arrangement up there in the sky, the earth that we are on right now, it's all made by God. And this is in contrast to people who do not want you to believe that. 
Okay, now let's, let, let's understand something. When, when Paul took the time to write this, there were people in the world that didn't believe in God. There was, there's a very, very popular poem in ancient times written in Latin by a, a poet that most people today say was an atheist, and it's called On the Beginning or the Coming into Being of Things. And it's about six books, hundreds of verses, a very thick thing. And, and this Roman poet and a whole bunch of other people didn't believe in God, and they mocked the gods in that. But it doesn't matter. Because just because people mock God, that doesn't change what Paul is saying here. Paul says very clearly concerning Christ, by whom also he made the worlds. This world exists because of Jesus. That's what we should believe. The, the idea that all things exist now because they just kind of evolved into what things are. It didn't make sense to the psalmist. They didn't believe that. They believed God made everything. It didn't make sense to the apostles and the people that walked with Jesus because you just read the sentence that Paul said. So why in the world would it make sense to us today just because a few scientists or geologists or different people say, well, look, we're smarter than you are. Maybe true. I don't know a whole lot about chemistry and all that, but I do know something about the Bible. And the scripture is very plain that by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, we understand. That means understanding comes by believing in God. And if people don't believe in God, they don't have understanding. So that means the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Folks, don't be foolish when you have to talk about these things. I saw one time a demonstration, and it didn't turn out the way the people wanted it to turn out. It was really quite embarrassing. This probably was 25 years ago I saw this. They had this man who was studying the rings and in the inside of a tree. And, you know, you're supposed to be able to determine how old a tree is by, I don't know, something about how many rings, how wide or something like that. And so he's going through all of this stuff, and he's talking about, well, this tree here more than likely about, oh, it estimates about 2,000 years old. You know, this, this one here is, is probably about 600 years old. This, this one here, it, it's a possibility it's been here a long time with the roots going out like that. It's probably been here over 10,000 years. So going, going through that whole thing. And, and so this, this one gentleman had asked him about this tree, and, and he looked at it, and he, he said he thought it probably was over 1,100 years old or something like that. And, and the gentleman explained to him that his grandfather planted you know, One of his grandfathers planted, planted the tree. Now, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about that, like I said, and I don't know how fast they grow, how wide they grow throughout, throughout the years, but I do know this. I, I, I've looked into enough stuff to know that when it comes to so much of what the world says coming up against God, the, the, the evidence they use very often is not even as overwhelming as they think it is. So what we can do is point to something that we know is a couple of thousand years old and say, here is what a wise man once said concerning God's son. It's by him the worlds have been made. So that's, that's solid ground I can stand on. And this is what the writer of Hebrews believed. Look at verse 3. It says of Jesus, he's the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, the brightness of his glory. So there is something about Christ that radiates 
the nature of God and the very glory of God. In the Old Testament, glory could be seen occasionally. The Bible talks about the cloud of glory that rested or resided on the tabernacle and the people saw it. it talks about the glory that was on in the temple sometimes and the people couldn't stand in the presence of it. Scripture says of, of Jesus that we beheld him because he had the glory as of the father. That's what the scripture says. So to have a glimpse of Jesus in the gospel was to be able to see the brightness of God's glory radiated and manifested here on the earth. And Jesus said in John 17, Lord, I want the glory that I had with you before I came into this world. So that, that means in order for Jesus to leave heaven and come here, he, 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 let, let's not look at his, um, his incarnation or the virgin birth as a subtraction. Like he laid aside his deity and all that kind of a thing. Just look at it, look at it more as a, an addition. He took upon himself man. He was still God. There was never a point in Jesus' life on this earth where he was not God. Born of a virgin, lived without sin, never had to apologize. Climbed up on the cross as a spotless lamb of God, died for us because we were guilty, should have been penalized for our iniquity. But he received the guilt, the reward of punishment that should have come to us, then was buried in a sepulcher. So that on the third day he could be let out, not by the soldiers, not by his disciples, but by the power of God. As Romans one says, he was raised up by the spirit of power, the spirit of holiness. And then the scripture says he stayed for 40 days teaching his disciples and then ascended to the right hand of God. So the brightness of his glory is manifested. And this is why when people talk about Jesus, they, they, they say, you know, if you, if you really want to know what God is like, study his son. And it's, it's this kind of a thing that can lead to an abuse of God's character because you have to read everything in the Gospels about Christ, even the things you may not like. I mean, Jesus was holy. Jesus was loving. Jesus was just. Jesus was also zealous. Remember, he went into the temple and drove the people out. They were selling everything. He said, the zeal of my father's house has consumed me. Jesus was a lot of things. Don't just pick the one thing about him that you like and take that. Take it all. Take it all. But then the express image of his person, the express image. Now, the, 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 before the, the KJV Bible, there was another Bible, a very popular Geneva Bible. They described this as the engraved form of God. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where the Greek word that underlies the express image is used. This is the only place in all the New Testament that's used in that Greek word, is the word we have in English as character. You say, what is character in the Greek? How do you define character? Character was a molding or some kind of stamp that was used to press an image upon a coin. And so that means that, that character ap accurately described is a representation of a certain standard. See, all of us have character. But whether your character or my character is good or bad has everything to do with how it has been formed and molded. And what makes your character what it is is the kind of information that you put in there. Even Paul talks about a conscience that's been seared with a hot iron. You, you know what happens if you take cattle and you brand it. 
You effectively nullify that skin's use so that it is of no value at all. And that's what happens with a person's conscience. You put the wrong information in and you can destroy a conscience to the point that it is of no value anymore and it doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. It's essentially numb. So character has to do with the impress or the stamp of God that is placed on us that causes us to act godly. How does this occur? You put the right information in. Read the book. Take the time to study the scripture and build your character. Character is not forged by watching talk shows on television. It doesn't come that way. Now you might learn some nice pieces of advice. and You might acquire some, some, some principles that, that might help you. But if, if you want the character that God gives, you have to study God's book. Because God's book is, is better. So then he says, upholding all things by the word of his power. All things are held together by the word of his power. People say, oh, the world is falling apart. Well, every generation says that. I, I've said before, if my grandparents were here today, they just fall over dead and die again. Just because of what they see. But you know what, what, what my grandparents said when they were my age? They said, I'm telling you, if my grandparents were here, they, they, they just fall over dead and die again. Because every generation sees their generation as going to hell in a handbasket. And it's always getting progressively worse. Everything's not, I mean, it's not getting better at all. That's, that's what we hear. But the one thing we don't want to forget, though, is it says here in verse 3, everything is upheld by his power, by his word. What is it that keeps the atoms and the molecules and everything together? The word of God's power. What is it that holds the laws of gravity in place? The word of God's power. And so this is important. Let, let's go to Genesis chapter 8. I want to show you something else I was thinking about. It's a very popular scripture. Chapter 8, verse 22. We're all aware of it. But I, I think we are made to fear when we hear people say things on television sometimes about this. Now, now God put us on the planet. I'm going to read verse 22 in chapter 8. God put us on the planet, and since the beginning of time, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, man is supposed to be a good steward of God's creation. Okay? We, no doubt about that. You can drive up and down our roads, and you can see that here in Nebraska we're good stewards. Kids and different people go out, and they... Walk up and down along the highways and pick up trash if they see it. You can go along the, the big highways and you see prisoners out there sometime and they're picking up stuff. I mean, pe people understand that we're, sh we're supposed to be good stewards. However, I, I don't want you to be frightened by these people who want you to believe that the world is getting too hot or too cold. And if we're not careful, this thing is going to blow up. Or, or, or pretty soon the polar ice caps are going to fall away and we're not going to have the coldness that we need anymore. Because God says in chapter 8, verse 22, in talking to Noah, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not what? Cease. Folks, it's not going anywhere. We've only been recording these uh, little things that the environmentalists talk about for a very short period of time in connection with how old 
everything is. But I mean, pe people act like, oh my, we, we've got to we've got to get to California as quite quick as we can and see the last redwood tree before it's cut down. I mean, you go out to California, I'm telling you, there are several million redwood trees up and down the coast. I go there every year, a couple of times each year. They're everywhere. And, and, and you know how it is. They'll say, well, we, we've got to understand that if, 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 we, don't, if we don't do something about, about this environment pretty soon, then all the, the nations of the world are going to be so polluted and things are going to fall apart. Here's what I know. The scripture says, while the earth remains, it's going to be here. We're going to have farming. It says here there's going to be cold and heat. That means there's not going to be a period of time where everything's just going to melt or everything's just going to freeze. God has his seasons. They're not going to change. He says there's going to be summer and winter, day and night. It says they shall not cease. Hebrews 1 says all things are upheld by the word of his power. So I don't get nervous about these things. I listen to what they have to say, and then I fall back on what the scripture says, now, coming back over here to Hebrews, the discussions that people have today, we forget that many of these were discussions people had long, long, long time ago. And there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. Nothing new at all. Well, somebody might bring up, well, you know, there, there are a lot of different animals and and things like that that no longer are in existence. Yes, and there are also a lot of languages and tribes on the planet that no longer are in existence. But that hasn't changed the fact that God has held things together by the word of his power. It says here that Jesus, when he had himself purged our sins. But what does it mean to, to have our sin purged? See, we, we see that word and then we think of modern meanings that are not always so pretty. But to purge our sins is to cleanse us of our sins. That's what that means. We're not talking about somebody who's bulimic and doesn't want to keep their food down. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who is cleansing something, eradicating something. The old books that... I'm sure some of you good folks studied when you were kids in school. If they had words in it that were foul or what we would consider cuss words, in many of those texts, the editors would put those cuss words in Italian or French or some other language that English readers wouldn't know. That was to say it's a word you're not supposed to know or understand. And those kinds of texts were called expurgated texts because they had been cleansed of the cuss words. Well, this is what this is talking about. Jesus climbed up on the cross. He sacrificed himself for us so that everyone who would trust and believe in him would be purged of their sins. That means all of us have sin and we're in need of the blood. And the scripture says in 1 John chapter 1 that anyone who says they don't need the blood is a liar. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What a powerful statement. When he had by himself purged our sins, he didn't need anybody's help. Peter didn't help him. Thomas didn't help him. Matthew didn't help him. If you would have been there, you could not have helped him. He didn't need the blood of a bull, a turtle dove, or anyone. By himself, 
He climbed up on that cross and sacrificed himself. I, I had a, a, uh, a, a seminary professor one time who was telling a story that happened in his hometown. And, and he was saying that uh, there were two brothers that were playing on the sandbanks of a river. And one followed another up the uh, sandbank. And when they got up to the top, the sandbank wasn't solid. So the weight of both of them caused them to start sinking down into the uh, sand. Well, come evening time when they didn't appear at the dinner table, mom and dad were kind of worried and they called the authorities. And pretty soon the authorities uh, started looking and they got a search party and the people from the community uh, went out there. And of course, they, they, they went over into that area and they found the, the younger brother and just his shoulders and his head was sticking up out of the sand. And so they, they got around him as quick as they could and started scooping, and they scooped all the way down to his waist, and, and finally he awakened because he was unconscious. And when they asked him, they said, well, where, what happened, and where is your brother? And, and he said, I'm, I'm standing on his shoulders. See, the, the older brother had ended up sinking down beneath the younger brother and somehow pushed the younger brother up as far as he could, and the younger, older brother sacrificed his life for his younger brother. A true story that took place in the professor's hometown. So you, you think of the sacrifice Christ made for us. You see, How that a, a man would leave heaven, come to earth with, oh my, everything to gain in the sense that he's going to gain us, our soul. And we're able to stand up on his shoulders and declare that we're, de we're delivered, we're saved, we're walking with the Lord because of what he has done. And because of his sacrifice, the final sentence of verse 3 says, he is now sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's rest, rested and ceased from his work, the finished work of Christ. The reason we call it finished is because he has done all that he's going to do to make redemption as perfect as it is. He did that 2,000 years ago. There's nothing he can add to it. There's not one thing we can do to make it better. We can't lessen it. The only thing we can do is believe it. That's all. So he's seated on the throne at the right hand of God. And this, I think, is absolutely marvelous. So then verse 4 takes us into what will be the Longer section when we talk about him being better than the angels. But but notice here. The, the reason he's better than angels is because later on in the chapter, it says the angels worship him. The reason Jesus is better than Moses is because when Moses, even though he was a deliverer, Moses needed to be delivered. The reason Jesus is better than Aaron is because Aaron's sacrifices could never do what Jesus, the Lamb of God did for us. The reason Jesus is better than the Old Testament law is because he's the mediator of a better new covenant. See? So everything about this book says Jesus is better. There's no need to become a Jewish person. There's no need to convert to Judaism. You've got the book of Hebrews that tells you Jesus is so much better than all of these other things. So stick with Christ. 
Magnify him. Let him reign in your life. Let him occupy the throne of your heart. Just have an understanding of what angels are for. Verse 4 says, being made so much better than angels. Now, angels appear from Genesis to Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, they appear more frequently than in any other book of the Bible. But angels certainly manifest from the beginning of time. Abraham told his servant, you go and get my son a wife from Iraq. I don't want him marrying one of these apostate Hittite women around here. You go to Iraq and get him a bride. He said, well, what if I go there and the girl doesn't want to come back? He said, don't you worry about that. The angel of the Lord will go before you. That's Genesis. Mm-hmm. So the scripture says of Moses, when God spoke to Moses out of the flame of fire in the burning bush, he said it was an angel in the flame of fire speaking to Moses. When Joshua was, was leading the children of Israel, it says one day he was walking out all by himself and he came upon an angel that was standing there and Joshua pulled his sword out and said, are you for me or are you against me? I mean, he wanted to try to take on the angel. But he wouldn't have won, but he, 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 wanted, to, he wanted to try. He was, he was aggressive. God has had angels throughout the scriptures. Samson's parents had to experience the presence of an angel. Yeah, that's not to mention our, our Savior. Remember Daniel was down there in the lion's den? Scripture says, my Lord sent his angel, shut the lion's mouth. Three Hebrew boys were in the burning, fiery furnace as we saw one with the likeness of a son of man. Then the other verse says, an angel walking through the fire with them. When Jesus was born, who heralded it first in the heavens? The angels bring you glad tidings. Mm-hmm. And then when Jesus started his ministry and he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, the scripture says that afterwards the angels came and ministered to him. And when, when Jesus was making his way to Calvary, The scripture says he told his disciples, we need to go pray. And while he prayed, Luke chapter 22 says the angels came and strengthened him. He climbed up on the cross. Hebrews says he offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. He was then buried. But then when he came up out of the ground and the women and them came to the the tomb there, the first thing they saw were those angels. And then when Jesus spent 40 days here and went to heaven, when he was going up, everybody standing there looking into the clouds as they received him and he disappeared. And the angel on planet Earth said, I don't know why you're looking up like that. The same way he went up, he's coming back. Yeah. So all throughout this book, folks, God has had angels as messengers that that have had very very specific assignments and the scripture in verse 4 says Jesus is made so much better than them better than angels but I do need to tell you in 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 closing and looking at this that the angel of the Lord encampeth about those that fear him that means that when you got in your car and came here if you walked here or rode here however you, you got here tonight whether you understand it believe it acknowledge it can discern it You have angelic help, angelic beings. The scripture even says of infants, of infants, that even their angels stand before the face of God. So you have angelic help on your side. And if the truth is told, 
when we probably get to heaven, you'll likely be surprised at the number of calamities you were spared because of the supernatural things that were taking place. Simple things, maybe like falling off the monkey bars when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Car accidents. Hebrews later on talks to us about entertaining angels when we're not aware of them. You know, you get into a car crash, you meet somebody, and then afterwards you try to go back, try to figure out who that person is, only to discover nobody in the area knows who that person is because likely could have been an angel that God was using to help you in your time of need. And a few of you in here, as, as well as I know you, I'm sure each evening when you put your head on the pillow, your angel leans up against that wall and says, wow, what a day. You think she's going to sleep in tomorrow? You know, yeah. Okay. Here's the last thing I'll say in verse 4. As he hath by inheritance, because we saw in verse 2 he's the heir, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So we only have in the Bible a few names of angels. You know, we have Michael, Gabriel, then in the book of Revelation, Apollyon, the destroyer. So if what we know of Michael as a fighter is true, the book of Daniel, he's fighting against the prince of other nations. If, if we accept those those names is true, then we have to understand that he does have a more excellent name because no other person in the Bible is given a name by which other people can be saved. Scripture says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is why we hold this verse with one of the Ten Commandments, which says you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. Jesus' name is not to be used as a substitute cuss word. His name is majestic. It's powerful. It's holy. And as the scripture says here, it is excellent. You know. So we're very careful about our usage of that. We conclude our prayers, as Jesus said in John chapter 15, chapter 16. He says that we should, in chapter 14, he says we pray in his name. He says, up to this point, you haven't prayed that way, but he says, hitherto, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name. So we take advantage of that name, but we don't abuse that name. Other people may do that, and when they do it, will grieve us. There may be times in your life where you correct people regarding that. Certainly you want to correct children and grandchildren about that. No, no, we don't, we don't, we don't talk like that. That's, that's Jesus' name. We don't play with his name. Like that, But there are people in this world who, when they find out you're a Christian, they'll start using the name of the Lord in vain just to get under your skin. Just pray for them. That's all. Just pray for them. You don't need to get all irate and into fisticuffs over things like that. The same spirit that animated the people in ancient times to crucify Christ, if Jesus was alive today, I could promise you they'd kill him again. Some people say, no, I, I think if Jesus were alive today, we, we'd do better. No, the, the generation would kill him again. Because it has nothing to do with whether or not a generation is better. It has to do with the issue of sin. See? And sin is what drives people that don't know God. Jesus wasn't attacked because people were just jealous. People were jealous because Jesus was holy. He was righteous. He provided a way of salvation 
that said to everybody that followed that temple structure, the temple structure can't save you. That said to all the Romans that follow the Roman gods, none of those gods in that imperial cult can help you. Said to all the people that worship all the other deities around the world, it said none of those can help you. I'm telling my disciples to go throughout the world and preach the gospel, preach the kingdom. Because Jesus knew that what he was saying was true. And he was provincial and that he was Jewish. He was narrow and that he said broad is the way that leads to destruction. But he was strong enough in what he believed that he said this is the way walk therein. So when Jeremiah stood in the gate and told the people to return to the ancient paths, that's what we have to say to every generation. Our generations change all the time and people say, we can't believe a book that's thousands of years old. Folks, I can't believe any other book other than this book. You see, this is the wisdom of God, the mind of God collected through the ages. And if I'm going to have the mind of God, I've got to put this information in here. And it's the same for you. It'll make you a better man or woman than you've ever been in your life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful tonight that your word is true. We are happy to be able to look into the scriptures and see how wonderful our Savior is. Father, we want to remember in prayer all of those who are absent tonight. We want to pray, Lord, for all of us who are here. Help us to apply these words to our lives every day. Make us stronger. And God, we pray that we manifest your Son in this earth everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen, amen.